in the service. Come find me. I'll, I'll give them out for free. You guys can have a seat. As Ray said, my name's Jordan. I'm one of the associate pastors here at the church. It's just my privilege to be able to be with you and open God's word with you and hopefully just be a conduit in which God uses to encourage you by. Um, as a church, before we dive into the scripture a little bit this morning, we have some, some business that we need to take care of right up front. Uh, it involves a Christmas Santa Claus. Um, <laughs> And so, uh, Chad and Sharon, um, I, it, you're my culprits. Now, it's nothing personal. It's all business. That's why it ended up at, at your house. I have to say, you have a long private driveway, so knocking and running in your area, that was quite difficult. I had to, had to work a little bit for that. Um, do, do you guys still have it today? You still have it? You didn't pass it on? Okay. All right. Um, they, we'll, we'll talk later. We'll, we'll talk later. Okay. Oh, oh, oh. Oh, okay. Awesome. All right. Good. Well, uh, the news is, is I don't have it anymore. And uh, let's praise Jesus this morning for that. Um, as Dre said, we're starting a new series in Malachi uh, today. And so um, the title of the series is Inside Out. And simply what we're going to see throughout this series is, um, is that the heart of Israel on their inside, their, their hearts did not match they're outside. And God is going to be interacting with them uh, as, as they are struggling with this relationship. And uh, it is my hope and it is my encouragement that we all are not only encouraged, but also convicted in how we maybe at times do not allow our hearts or do not lead our hearts to reflect what it, our outward appearance really is. And so really unifying, <clears throat> excuse me, these two ideas is, uh, is really a, a huge goal of ours through this series. Now for the first maybe 10, 12 plus minutes, I want to do some background work. I want to set us up well for this book. Um, we're going to do a little bit of, of uh, uh, Bible teaching. Like what is, how does the Bible made up? Where does Malachi fall in, uh, in the Bible? And also where in history? We're going to look at two different charts. And again, um, I, I, I'm choosing to spend time here because I think it's a good time for us all to be reminded about the structure and the organization of scripture. But it's my biggest prayer that once we see where Malachi is, not just in the makeup of the Bible, but also in history, we'll be able to understand a little bit more where Israel is at as God is interacting with them. Uh, and we can be encouraged uh, as well as because as, um, the Holy Spirit is going to be speaking to us just as he spoke to the nation of Israel. And so here is just a simple Bible chart, right? This is all 66 books of the Bible. If um, Many of you may know that 39 books, so the first two Book, tops of the shelf there. Uh, 39 books of the Old Testament, 27 books in the New Testament. Here is what I love about the Bible, is that the Bible was, um, was written by 40, over 40 different authors over a span of 1,500 years. So lots of authors writing, putting together these books, these letters into uh, the text that we hold in our hands today. And, but the cool thing is, 40 authors over 1,500 years, there is one, what we could call a melodic line through the entire page, uh, through the, all the pages 
of scriptures. In other words, you know, you think about a song that you sing. There's that melodic line that just carries and connects everything in a song. And there is something that connects. There's one hand that connects, uh, or sorry, one voice that connects everything said in scripture. And it all points to the culmination of, uh, of who Jesus is and what his purpose is. And the New Testament, looking back at the cross, celebrates us and tells us what it was really all about. And so um, love that about the Bible in itself. Now, the, the, the Old Testament, again, made up of 39 books. Uh, we, we see that there are books in the law. There are historical books. There are poetry books. There are major prophets. There are minor prophets. Now, these are just categories that the books of the Bible are, are put in. What, one thing I want to encourage us in is, is, um, is lots of people try to pick up the Bible and read it like a good novel from beginning to end, and they get lost, and they get confused. Do we take the Bible as literal or do we not? When each book is, is intended to be read a little bit differently, right? So we just went through the series in Revelation uh, this past year, and you don't read the book of Revelation like you would read the book of Genesis. You read historical accounts as historical accounts. You read the Psalms as poetry. So um, when it talks about God having a hand and eyes and head and all that stuff, like that's just imagery given to us to be able to wrap our minds around who God really is. So we don't read it as literal. So there are many different appropriate ways to read different parts of scriptures. Now we get to the major prophets and the minor prophets. Malachi, I know the, the font is really, really small, but it, this is really just to prove a point than to actually show you every single book of the Bible. Malachi is the last book in the, uh, in the Old Testament. It's part of the minor prophets. There's a huge theological difference between the major prophets and the minor prophets. The chapters. <laughs> there's, there's, there's more chapters in the major prophets and there's less chapters in the minor prophets. That was a joke. There wasn't really a major theological difference. Thank you. Okay, we're awake this morning. Um, and, and so I just want us to see that, that, that Malachi is part of the prophets, and it's the last book, and, and, and really there's not a big significance between what Isaiah says and what Malachi says, other than Malachi's four chapters long, and Isaiah is a lot more than four chapters long. 66, don't, don't look it up. Um, and so... Um, Anyway, so that's uh, where, where we're at here. Um, the, the series flow, I, I want us to see um, the structure in which we're going to be looking at the book of Malachi. I talked about there's, there's a different appropriate ways to read through different books of the Bible. Many scholars have seen what is called the, a, a chiastic structure in the book of Malachi. This is mostly seen, we see chiastic structures in, uh, in, like, um, uh, in Psalms and in some of those other uh, poetry type books. We, we see that the flow just kind of changed uh, to be able to prove a point. There are many scholars that see a chiastic approach in Malachi. Now, when, once we dive in, uh, what we're going to see all throughout this book is six different disputations or six different arguments that Israel and God are going to have with one another. And so uh, what we really mean by a chiastic structure is, look, you see an A, B, C, C, B, A. So that's like the argument one, two, three, four, five, six. But one and six are going to have so many similar similarities that, uh, um, that 
Um, scholars say that there's something a lot bigger going on here, as well as the, um, uh, the second and the uh, fifth arguments or disputations are going to have a lot to connect, and as well as the third and fourth. And so, um, so that's the way that we're going to approach this book. So today we're going to be looking at Malachi chapter one, verses two through five, in which um, Drath started us off. At, and we're going to end in Malachi 3, 13 through 3, 18. Um, next week, we're going to end up here, and you'll get to see our, our, different, ver- our different ways, uh, sorry, our different sermon uh, titles and where they're coming from as we're going through this book. Um, again, all these sermon slides are online, so if you want to see more clearly or see them more, um, uh, you can write stuff down, or if you want to look at these charts later, you can pull it up on our website after we upload the sermon series. So, um, so that's the, the structure and the way in which we're going to flow. We're going to look at the first and the sixth argument today. Now, let's dive into the background a little bit. Where is Malachi? What is Malachi going through? What's Israel going through when uh, God is interacting with them? Um, Last chart I want to show you. Uh, Again, the, the main thing I want you to see here is that bold line. This is Israel's history throughout the Old Testament. Again, I, I felt it was important for us to be able to see what has been going on from the very beginning, the birth of the nation of Israel, where uh, 2000 BC, where Abraham begins, and where that last arrow in the post-exilic time frame, that's uh, right when the Old Testament ends, before we get to the silent era, before the New Testament begins, okay? Are you kind of flowing with me, hopefully a little bit? Well, what you see is the birth of the nation of Israel, and then once you get to 950 BC, that's when King David came onto the scene. After King David, David, his son, King Solomon, reigned. And we know books of the Bible that are connected with these, with these people. After Solomon, the, um, uh, the, the nation of Israel was split into two different kingdoms. That's what that split is. You got Israel and you got Judah. You got 10 tribes that went up with Israel. Two tribes of the 12 tribes of Israel are with Judah. And so what we know about Israel is that right at 722 BC, the Assyrians came in just as God has prophesied through uh, the, the prophets. Assyria came in and wiped out Israel. Israel and took them into, uh, into their land. Judah at 586 BC, Babylon came in again, just as God prophesied and wiped out Judah as well. So now the nation of Israel, all 12 tribes were not living in the promised land. That big dip there is the 70 years that Israel was in Babylon captivity. 70 years. Again, it's really amazing to see God even use those numbers of how long they were going to be in captivity. Whenever their time was up, there are, uh, they worked their way. God released them. They went back to the promised land, and they were their own nation again. And that is the post-exilic time frame. Now, I'll walk through all that just so that you know Malachi is writing during this post-exilic time frame. Key points to point out, right where you see this split of Israel and Judah, that's the time in history where Solomon built the temple that God dwelt in. 
Solomon and all of his wisdom and all of his resources built this amazing temple where there's the holy place and there's the uh, most holy place or the holy of holies. The place where no, uh, no person can walk because the presence of God dwelt there. So much we can go through with that that we just don't have time to. Just know that the presence of God was dwelling in this temple and was there up until the time whenever Israel was overrun. The temple was destroyed. The temple existed no more. If you know your Bible history and Bible knowledge, Nehemiah, the book of Nehemiah, the, the book of Ezra, the book of Esther, talk about Israel going back into the promised land and rebuilding the walls and eventually rebuilding the temple. You know what didn't go back into the temple after they rebuilt it? The visible presence of God did not dwell in the temple like it did before when Solomon built it. Something that, that is good for us to know and good for us to understand is that, that Malachi was written about 70 to 100 years after Israel ended up back in the land, after they returned home. Once they went back into their land, there are many scholars who argue that they didn't struggle with idolatry like they had all throughout the Old Testament. Remember, they were, they were living in the land of, of, uh, of people who were not godly, who were serving other gods, and they served those other gods as well, and God spoke to them often about that. During this time frame, those, uh, those, they, they were not involved in blatant idolatry. They were not worshiping other gods. They were worshiping God and God alone. Solomon's temple had been rebuilt, but the presence of God had not, uh, which had once been visible, was no longer there. So Israel is sitting 70 to 100 years after they were back in the land, and the question that comes back to them is, does God still care about us? Is he still with us? Is he still there? The question, the series, or the, the sermon for today is, is, God, where are you? I think that Israel really experienced that question during this time frame. And I think that you and I also experienced that question many, many times. There's probably many of us in this room who are walking through life either outright asking that question or it's something that we're harboring deep down inside of our hearts. And we'll continue to unpack that here in a few minutes. Israel was back in their land. After experiencing everything that they had gone through, they never ever forgot their God. But their view of God was greatly impacted. Imagine with me just for a minute being a Jewish boy or a Jewish girl being born in captivity, being born in Babylon. You do not know anything about being a Jew in the land of Israel. You grow up with your parents who know that history and know that story and the, uh, the stories that they tell, the oral traditions that they share of, you connect with. Man, the Jewish culture is such a, um, a tradition based in a... In a um, story-based culture, I can only imagine how great they were at sharing these stories that have been happening, that, that their forefathers had walked through. 
Beyond that, they were holding text in their hands of the Old Testament text. They were holding the law. They were holding some of the prophets. They were holding some of the Psalms. And they were able to see and interact and know who God is. Imagine yourself knowing God, knowing what is right and knowing what is wrong, understanding the law and knowing what God asks of me and fighting really hard when you're not in your land to continue to do the things that God asks you to do. And then you end up back in your land through, through much trial, much tribulation. You end up back there. You, you're released. You rebuild the temple. You're doing everything that you know is right to bring the presence of God back. And 70 to 100 years later, you're an old person at this time. And the presence of God that was once talked about or once experienced was not there in the same exact way that they were used to seeing it. And so we can, we can relate, right? That the question of asked, where are you, God? You've been faithful, but God has lacked showing up. Malachi's prophecy, which we're going to see, is a wake-up call to the nation of Israel. It's a wake-up call to know God just as her forefathers knew God. It's a wake-up call calling them back to proper worship. We've got to understand this. The, pre- the physical presence, the visible presence of God was no longer dwelling in the temple, but that did not mean God was not with them. That does not mean that God did not walk with them. That does not mean that God was not present. So these disputation, these arguments that God and Israel are having back and forth together is just a reestablishment of who are we in you? And I think this is so relevant for us today as we struggle with the same exact question. Depending on the day, depending on the week, depending on the year, we're overwhelmed with feeling these exact same things. So let's dive into Malachi. Uh, Again, it's the last book in the Old Testament. Look there with me. Turn your Bibles there if you haven't already. And again, the two places we're going to look, and I want you to be able to just see it before we go there, is the first few verses uh, all the way up to verse 5 in chapter 1. And then uh, you flip your pages over, at least mine, in chapter 3. We're going to look at verse 13 all the way through 18. And we see a connection between these two things, these two pieces. And the connection I want us to see between these two pieces is Israel's voice to God saying, God, if you loved us, then why is life so terrible? Then why is life so hard? Their question goes so much, differ, uh, so much deeper. He's saying, God, is there a distinction in your mind between all those who are good and all those who aren't good, who do not follow you, who are not righteous, or are they all the same? Or actually, do you not love us more than you love all those pagans out there? Because we're the ones who are following you, but we are still experiencing so much trouble. We are still experiencing so much pain. If you loved us, why in the world is life still like this we're back in the land but you're not here so that's their perception anyway again extremely relatable um 
couple of examples of things that I know some of us in this room are walking through to where we can relate. Maybe you're a 20-something who's trying to get into college, trying to get in into, into either complete or continue your education. You have this thing, this plan that you've prayed through and that you're pursuing and you're trying to manipulate your job and your work focus to be able to get to this end goal. Ultimately, so you can glorify God with your life. That's what your pursuit is. But everything starts falling apart. And so the questions are, God, where are you? I thought this is what you were leading me to. I thought this was where I'm supposed to be, but everything seems so confusing and it doesn't make sense right now. It could be as simple, dare I say, simple as that. Maybe there's some of us in this room who have been dealing with, for a long time, chronic pain. Or we have a family member who has such strong allergies that, that life has just been so difficult. There are many of us in this room. I, we as a staff have a joy and a pleasure to receive your, your prayer cards that you fill out on those, those comment cards. And we pray through them every single Tuesday when we get together for staff meeting. Every one of them by name. So well, I, I have knowledge of people just really hurting in here. Families who are hurting and my heart hurts for you because I can only imagine what it's like to walk through and continue to pursue Jesus in the midst of something that could potentially bring so much confusion. God, where are you? If it's not that, maybe it's divorce. Maybe your spouse has left you or shared some things that are extremely piercing and you have no idea how to handle it. God, where are you? Maybe those things aren't things you can relate with, but I know there's a few of us in this room that we feel the weight of the world. We turn on the news or we get Twitter feeds and we, we, get, we get things to our phones that share to us and remind us that the world is an extremely broken place. Pain and suffering all over the world and we just get so bogged down. God, where are you? What we're going to see in the text this morning is God saying, life is so hard right now because I allow the stake of sin to remain in the ground. The chaos that we're experiencing every day is attributed to the fallenness of this world. This will not always be the case, but for right now it is. God is saying, my unconditional love. This is what I want us to hear this morning as we read in Malachi. He says, my unconditional love towards you and my future promise to unstake the global power of sin is more than sustainable for today. See that, get that, understand that. God's voice to us. My unconditional love towards you and also my future promise to unstake the global power of sin in this world. Because that day's coming. That should be sustainable enough for you today. Let's look at Malachi. Let's see the question that um, is posed and the one that even um, Draith read for us this morning. Malachi, let's start in uh, chapter 1, verse 1. So we know Malachi is the author of this book, the oracle of the word of the Lord to Israel by Malachi. Verse 2, 
I have loved you, says the Lord. But you, Israel, you say, how have you loved us? Is not Esau Jacob's brother, declares the, declares the Lord? Yet I have loved Jacob, but Esau I hated. Wow. What in the world is going on here? Love and hate, these words that God is using extremely intentionally, it's, it's void of the emotional connection that you and I have as we know that word. God is not saying he emotionally loves someone and emotionally hates another. But what he is actually saying to us is, I have chosen one and I have rejected another. You're like, that's awesome, Jordan. That doesn't make me feel any better. <laughs> well, let's take some time to just kind of see this and unpack this. Let's recognize, first and foremost, here in 2017, 2018, um, the debate of free will and God's sovereign election is not a simple thing to wrap our minds around. I'm going to go as far as to say that it's not as black and white as some people like to put it out there to be. There is a mystery surrounding this debate of do we have free will or is God sovereignly electing everyone to come into salvation what we do know with absolute certainty is the Bible talks about both God's sovereignty and man's responsibility and man's choice. God makes it really clear that there is something going on whenever he chooses, and it is littered all throughout Scripture. And I'm going to be honest with you, this is great news for us as followers of Jesus to be able to see and to read and to understand and to wrap our minds around. Many people get so caught up in this debate or in this question um, because they want to know how God's election, how it actually works, but they tend to miss what God means when he's lavishing us with these words, what we do know is that God never rejects anyone that comes to him. We see this in the book of John. Uh, John chapter 6, verse 37 makes it really clear that anyone that God sends that comes to Jesus, he will never push away. So our responsibility in seeing God talk about such strict and harsh and real things is to say, God, what are you saying? What do you want us to get through this? Jacob you loved, Esau you hated. Who are these two people, right? We have Abraham, we have Isaac, we have Jacob, who are the forefathers of our faith, right? Know that Isaac had two sons, twins, right? Jacob and Esau. And there's so much to talk about here. But what we must know and what we must see is that God chose um, Isaac to be, I'm sorry, he chose Jacob to be the one to carry on his plan to become the nation of Israel. Esau, which later became the nation of Edom, God did not choose. 
God chose to make his name known through the nation of Israel, through Abraham, through Isaac, through Jacob, and so on as the nation of Israel was planted by God's sovereign choice. And there's so much good for us to see in this conversation. Let's look at this again. Malachi chapter 1, verses 2. Let's read a verse, thri- verse 5. God says, I have loved you, says the Lord, but you say, how have you loved us? Is Esau Jacob's brother, declares the Lord? Yet I have loved Jacob, but Esau I hated. I have laid waste his hill country um, and left his heritage to jackals of the desert. If Edom says, we are, um, we are shattered, but we still rebuild the ruins, the Lord of hosts says, they may build, but I will tear down. And they will be called the wicked country and the people to whom the Lord is angry forever. Your eyes, Israel, your eyes shall shall see this and you shall say, great is the Lord beyond the borders of Israel. God is saying to this nation in this post-exilic time frame, I have chosen you. I have adopted you. I have redeemed you. I have loved you. And guess what? I didn't choose you because you were the best of all nations from the very beginning of time. I chose you because I chose you. If anything, history says you have been the worst stepchild. (laughs) But God's sovereign love still remains and has never faltered. Sure, consequences came as any loving parent would do to a child who is going astray consequences came but God's love remained and has always been there from the very beginning to this point he also said to them in what we just read that you will see how significant my love is for you. You've never earned it, but yet it is still there with you. When you watch Edom and other nations, you watch me not bless them in the same ways that I'm blessing you. So you see them walking through the things that they are walking through, but yet I am <clears throat> choosing you to bless you. It's a significance. This is significant. When you realize that my anger is directed not at you, then you will scream from the rooftops of the mountains, great is the Lord. Just like a child who has been caught red-handed doing something absolutely they were not supposed to do. And they know mom and dad's wrath is coming. It's going to be painful, but so be it. Here we go. And mom and dad just say, I think you've learned your lesson. You go to the rooftops. Hallelujah! I'm still alive. They haven't killed me yet. In a weird way. We're the same. We don't deserve that title that God has given us as chosen, as adopted, as redeemed. And when we feel the weight of that redemption that we never, ever deserved or never, never earned, we run to the mountaintops and we proclaim to the God, to the Lord of hosts, great is your name because you have saved me when I don't deserve it. 
Please, God, never let me make that choice again because I don't ever want to go back to that sloth. I want to come back to you. Great is your name. When was the last time we were able, that we were able to declare that with hands held high to the sky? The weight of this world tends to weigh us down. God said, not only do you not understand my love for you and the sovereign love that I have for you, you also speak against me as though we were enemies. So the sixth argument that we're going to see here in Malachi is, but how, how have we ever spoken against you? We've been faithful. We followed the law. We've done all the things that you've required us to do. How in the world have we ever spoken against you? Let's look at chapter 3, verse 13. And let's read 13 through 15. Your words have been hard against me, says the Lord. Again, this is the sixth argument in this chiastic movement. But you say, how have we spoken against you? You have said... God's reminding them what they have said, either out loud or in their hearts. They know it's true. Verse 14, and you have said, it is vain to serve God. What is the profit of our keeping his charge or of waking, uh, uh, sorry, as walking as in mourning before the Lord of hosts? And we will call the arrogant blessed evildoers not only prosper, but they put God to the test and they escape. The world around us is just getting away with murder when we are so faithful. There's no profit. There's no benefit to serving you. Oh, Yahweh God, where are you? God reminds them that this is their cry that the, though either they said it out loud or they've said it in their hearts, they're saying there's no benefit at all to following you. Where has their undivided worship gone? Somewhere along the line, Israel's undivided worship of their one true king has turned into mindless obedience, just going through their actions, believing they're not loved, and also believing that there's no benefit to continue serving and giving my undivided attention. So I'm going to just do the things that I know to do just to get me by because I know I should do it. This is the way it's always been done. I'm going to continue to do it. Mindless obedience. Man, this is something I connect with. I constantly lose sight of my relationship with God and I turn to mindless obedience. This is something that I'm constantly going back and forth with God on. This is something I'm constantly repenting of and I'm going, God, thank you so much for making me aware of it, but I'm so ashamed that I keep going back to this just doing and going through the motions. And as someone who has the privilege to work in the church, it's easy for me to study for a sermon because that's what I get paid to do. This is my job. And so I'm just going to go through and how can I put this together to where it can make sense to the people that I'm preaching to instead of ever going before God and saying, God, what do you want to say to the people here? 
What can I do to be your conduit to be able to speak to the hearts of those who are in this room? It's frequent. I got to take a step back and go, God, I've been all about my agenda. It's so difficult because I trust myself most of the time. But God says, I want more. I need not just mindless obedience. I need undivided worship. I love choosing me over God. And I never admit that publicly. (laughs) For Israel, at this time, life seemed mundane at best. Circumstances led them to ask God, where are you? When we ask this question to God, we expect God to provide the answers that we want. And we got to recognize that in ourselves. When we ask, God, where are you? The expectation is that God's gonna reveal to you exactly what you want to hear. My hope and my plan at removing the pain is X, Y, Z. Hold on just a little bit longer because it's all gonna go away. But many of us in this room, that is not our experience. The pain lingers, the pain lasts, and we gotta figure out how in the world do we move forward. I'll say what I said earlier today. God says, all you need is my unconditional love and the hopes of my future promise of unstaking global, the global power of sin. That's what you need. Understand my deep love for you and understand this is not forever. This is not your forever. This will end eventually. I'm not promising you it's going to end tomorrow. I'm not even promising you it's going to end this next year. I'm not going to promise you that it's going to end by the time that your life is done on this earth. But I am promising you a future hope and a future glory where all that is going away and you will be with me in eternity. And all this will be for greater purposes and greater reasons. And we're just asked to know that this isn't our forever. This is just out right now. So, God's encouragement for us, all you need to know is my unconditional love, the hope of the future promises, unstaked, unstaking the global power of sin, and the pain isn't yours forever, it's just right now. I want to close our time by just looking at these last few verses Verses 13, 14, and 15 just pose the question, and God answers the question, but the hope is found in verses 16, 17, and 18. God says, but those who feared the Lord spoke with one another. The Lord paid attention and heard them. Oh my gosh, put that deep down in your hearts. The people who were feeling this, who were expressing concern in the midst of this, sought the Lord, and the Lord heard them. That was their first go-to. It's just, we need to go before the Lord. And the Lord says, I heard them. And a book of remembrance was written before him and those who feared the Lord and esteemed his name. Here, verse 17, they shall be mine, says the Lord of hosts. In the day when I'm Make up my treasured possession, and I will spare them as a man spares his son who serves him. Then once more you shall see the distinction between the righteous and the wicked, between one who serves God and one who does not serve him. God says, I don't promise you when you're going to see that. I promise you that you will see. There's a distinction between the wicked and the righteous. 
I love you, and I'm going to prove my love all the way through eternity. That is what sustains us today. We have to understand that deeply and fully and get it to know exactly what God is calling us to, to be his, to fear the Lord, to pursue him, to be with him. And scripture makes it really clear that he gives us the Holy Spirit to learn and to know how to maneuver these situations that tend to bog us down. And the greatest news of, of all is that God knows we're going to go back to this hole that we tend to crawl in and we cry out in a way that speaks against the Lord of where are you God? We're going to go back to that place, but the Holy Spirit's going to come into that place with us and pull us out of that place and remind us of who we are, especially when we read texts just like this to say hope is coming, pursue me, fear me, and I promise you I will be enough for you today to get you through what you're walking through today. It's easy for me as a guy standing on a stage to be able to say that. It's a whole different story to be able to walk through it. I constantly realize my faithlessness and I pray frequently Psalms 51. In Psalms 51, David, after busted with his sin with Bathsheba, comes before God and he says, create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. Cast me not away from your presence, and please, God, do not take your Holy Spirit from me. Restore unto me the joy of my salvation, and uphold me with a willing spirit. I fight through that verse to declare to God in the midst of me being found out and me feeling shameful in the midst of my sin because it confesses to God that I know my heart is rotten and God, I need you to create in me that clean heart. I need you to renew me. God, please don't ever give up on me. Do not cast me away from yourself, but bring me back to yourself. And when you do, please, God, please, this is something I just beg God frequently, restore the joy of my salvation back to me. Because right now I don't feel it. I don't know where you are. I can't see you. And I need you. And more times than not, God answers that prayer. My experience is that God has not left me in the unknown for too long. When I seek his face, the joy of salvation returns in some light or another to let me know that this is not a God of just a book or a God of just of history, but this is the God of history who interacts with us personally and individually. My call is for us to surrender our lives to that God. It's not just about the nation of Israel anymore. Throughout the New Testament, the gospel goes to all people, to you and to me, saying this is ours if we surrender to the great love that God has for us, where we don't love ourselves as much as we love God. And we fear him and we pursue him and he says to us, you are mine. Amen. Let us pray. I'm gonna invite the band back on the stage to be able to lead us as they come up and as we pray. I want to call us to just come before the altar of God in whatever way the Holy Spirit is leading you. This is a callback. No matter how you walked in this room, this is a callback 
to worship. I come to the altar to see the presence of our living God. Do not let sin and shame rule you anymore, but come before him with fear and trembling, knowing he wants to meet us and speak hope and speak life in us. God, thank you so much for your words and for the reminder of who you are. God, I, um, I don't envy Israel for walking through what they walked through, but God, I'm so thankful that you saw fit to not just lead them through that, but to write it down in your words, to give me encouragements today that you're not done with me. You remind me of how deep and how great and how wide your love is for me. And it, God, you continue to remind us all in this room just how sustaining that love is. At times it feels so, I don't know, it just feels like words at times because I know the right answers. But God, when your Holy Spirit grips my heart and leads me to understand the truth and the depth of what it means that you've chosen me, out of all the peoples of history, you have chosen me to be your child. It draws me to lay down and offer my life to you. This is no generic love that you offer, God. This is adoptive power. And I pray that we all experience that today as we come to your altar.